Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is supported by Great Jones, a startup that makes high-quality cookware that's beautiful and affordable. There's a reason why I'm an investor. Grace and I cook at home with Great Jones all the time, like our Sunday tradition of making braised oxtails in their cast iron enamel Dutch oven and spaghetti with fish sauce in their stainless steel stock pot. Don't laugh at it until you try it. Great Jones starts at $45 and their whole set costs $395, a worthy investment. I'm excited that they can make high quality cookware more widely accessible. If you want to upgrade your kitchen tools without spending a fortune, I highly recommend go to greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off. That's greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $25 off. It's fantastic cookware. It looks great in your kitchen and it'll last you a long time. Every kitchen needs good cookware. Go to Great Jones. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. As always, thank you to Yola Tango for the amazing intro music. We have a great guest today, one of my good friends, one of my mentors, one of my heroes, the great chef Wiley Dufresne. Before we get to that, I want to talk about a couple things. I recently went on a couple fishing trips. My schedule is packed, so if I've been MIA the past couple weeks, the last week of August and September, it's because I was I was fishing, and not just any fishing. I, you know, for a long time I've been fly fishing, and actually lived out in Wyoming for a summer back in the 1999 uh, time. Uh, learned how to fly fish there for trout in near Jackson Hole and. It's just something that I never thought that I would fall in love with. It's been my activity of choice. And fly fishing is something that I'm talking about, not just because it's my hobby. I actually think there's a lot of cooks that listen to this podcast. And I know a lot of other people listen to it as well. And maybe this is something for you too. I think fly fishing is a wonderful hobby. It's a great sport. And it's something that you should try to do. And it can be cost prohibitive, but... It doesn't have to be. You can always start off with a, a pretty entry-level rod, and you can check out a local stream wherever you live. New York City's got it. L.A., you can go fishing for carp, of all things, in the river there. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful water. And the reason why I think it's interesting for cooks is because all the mise en place that you need to be a fly fisherman. And there's a reason why I think there's a lot of chefs, like Tom Clickio. I've gone fishing with George Mendez. Everyone that I, uh, not everyone, there's a lot of people that are cooks that seem to be heavily involved in the fly fishing and angling in general. And I think that's because of the whole, I don't know, ritual of getting set up, getting your fly lines in order, your leaders, if you are so inclined to tie your own flies, the whole thing is like the same kind of zen when you start filleting fish or butchering. It's this very cathartic thing of getting everything ready before you go fishing. And then the whole thing is like chess with nature. And it's a lot of fun. And I've been going permit fishing now. I caught the saltwater bug about 10 years ago. And I always go down to the region near Tulum. And there's a bunch of fishing lodges down there because I, I want to catch permit. And that's the thing that I love the most, even though I still love trout fishing. And even though I haven't gone striper fishing here in Montauk, in Long Island, and uh, I haven't gone carp fishing either in Los Angeles, 
bourbon fishing is sort of my my love. And the reason I'm talking about this is long-winded as it is, as usual, is because I, I posted a photo on Instagram recently about a restaurant called El Mirador, and you're never going to get there because you can only get there by boat. And um, I wasn't joking. It was one of the best meals I've ever had. And it's just an island in uh, Espirito de Santo, which is like a nature preserve that's off the body of water near Ascension Bay. And man, like warm water lobsters, you go there, there's sort of like, you can buy beer and some snacks. And they really only serve three things, conch ceviche, lobster ceviche, and roast lobster. And man, I've been thinking about this meal. We went there two days in a row because like, it was just epic. And I can't think of a better thing to go chasing for permit, having a good fishing day, and then being blown away by the freshness of quality and just how delicious the ceviche was, the lobster ceviche, which I'm not a huge fan of in general, right? But this was the maybe the best ceviche. I'm not a ceviche expert, but I was truly floored at how delicious it was with um, warm tortillas, like, uh, man, like so good, and the heat from the habaneros. And what was amazing is they go get the lobsters for you because there's a lobster pen in the water about, say, 100 yards away. And they bring it back, and they brought, like, 20 lobsters for, like, six of us. And I helped clean them, and it was a total blast. And it was the roast lobster. They basted it in butter, and they roasted it, and they served it with a mayo and a corn relish and some habanero. And honestly, that was probably one of the best cooked lobsters I've ever had. And... I was just sort of floored because by the definition of a Michelin guide, a three-star Michelin guide is like a trip worthy of a special destination, right? Like special ingredients. It's like all these things that like that to me merit a three Michelin star restaurant. And I just kept on wondering, this is one of the best meals I've ever had. It truly was. And I could see how some people may not think so, but it's essentially a lobster shack where a lot of the fly fishing guides go they call it borracho time, you know, and just get drunk. But the love and care and the quality of ingredients was as good as any dining experience I've ever had. And I just wonder, should we reevaluate our whole ability to judge what a great restaurant is? Because on the surface, it's not a three mission star restaurant, but what's on the plate is one of the best meals I've ever had. So it's a long-winded way of me getting to that point of talking about permit fishing, which I highly encourage you guys to try to learn because I think that fly fishing needs more support. It's a wonderful sport. It's very hard. It's a lot of practice, but it's just something I'm addicted to. But the reason is, is like, if you go in with open eyes with an empty cup, you never know the great meal that's going to be right there. And I've been going to this place for a long time. I've never eaten at this restaurant because I've just thought it was never going to be good. And I was floored at how good it was truly floored. And listen, I'm sure someone may not like it. I can only tell you from my opinion. I thought it was one of the best meals I've had in a long time, mainly because it was so delicious and it was made with love. Anyway, I'll shut up now about that. You know, maybe one day we'll do a a larger podcast about fly fishing in general and the amazing personalities that sort of comprise it. But I love it because It's the only thing I can do, one of the very few things that if I focus on, I don't think about work. Because if I think about anything else other than being in the moment to catch that fish, I'm going to fuck it up. So I know I just talked about two different things, but really I just want to talk about that restaurant, El Mirador, which (laughs) 
I'm sure most people will never, ever get to. But I think the concept of keeping your sort of options open and, and, and having an empty cup as to where a great food might be. Anyway, I don't know if I need too much of an introduction with Wiley Dufresne. We spoke a couple weeks ago. He came by Wyo. We recorded it there in the South Street Seaport area. I know I, I talk a lot about it, but I don't know if I have my career or my, uh, I don't know if I have a, a restaurant group, quite frankly, without Wiley Dufresne. We go a little bit into that story, but without his help, I probably would have been shut down by the health department for sous vide cooking for sure. And he saved my ass. And not only did he save my ass, he was an inspiration for a long time and continues to be uh, when he was uh, at 71 Clinton Fresh Food. And then later when he opened up WD-50 on the Lower East Side on, on Clinton Street. And uh, Wiley is one of the best people I know. And he now operates Dew's Donuts in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He had dropped off a whole box of yeast donuts Delicious, but his cake donuts are amazing. One of my best friends, and I was so honored to have him come here and talk. And it's, uh, I think it's catnip for foodies or people that love sort of food history. I have uh, so much to talk to him about. I will shut up, let you talk to one of the best chefs, probably the most important chef America's ever produced. And I stand by that. I know I am prone to hyperbole, but... um, he fundamentally changed my life, and I owe him a lot. And I dare say 71 Clinton Food, for me, is the most important restaurant in American history in my life. And I'm sure it was for other people as well. Uh, without further ado, here is Wiley Dufresne. I don't know where to begin. Um, and I've been saving WD because I knew we'd always have like an easygoing conversation because I was like, man... I think we have to have Wiley on because your name continues to get popped up. I think it's the most frequent name that's brought up in all of our, what, 70 plus podcasts. And I knew it was time to talk about it because I asked my cooks some things like Albert Aja and Fernagia are coming back and they're at uh, uh, Jose Andres's uh, Little Mercado in uh, Hudson Yards. And like, who are they? <laughs> um, hey, uh, Heston Blumenthal, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, what's, what's that? What's a Heston? Is that the oven range? I'm like, what is, what's going on? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's nuts. Pierre Hermé came into Alder <laughs> and nobody, nobody knew who Pierre Hermé was. I was like, I don't even know where to start. You guys don't even, you, no one's even heard of him. Like, forget about it. I know you haven't met no, nobody, nobody, not one person knew who Pierre Hermé was. What's happened? Well, I mean, I don't, that, I, mean, I don't want to come here and start. Like, Let's do it. Let's talk, talk, let, talking. Let's talk shit. Speak, speaking ill. I mean, you know, I can remember back in the day where I showed up to work every Wednesday at JoJo's. And if I hadn't arrived, having already read the food section. So when my sous chef would, when I was just a line cook, my sous chef would start talking to me about what was in the food section that day. And I mean, it wasn't just disappointment. It was like, I was going to have a bad day. If I hadn't arrived having read the times that morning on my way there or whatever, back then you could go stand in front of the times on Tuesday night and get a a printed copy, which was also a wonderful sort of way. Real thing. Yeah. Hey, uh, (laughs) we're getting a review tomorrow. Hey, Chang, go up to the New York times building and wait outside at like 10 PM. Yeah. And get 10 copies, (laughs) but you know, pay for a bunch of copies, you know, 
No, but there's something <laughs> wonderful about it too. It was insane, but it was wonderful. You know, I remember when 71 got reviewed, that's what we did, you know, but I think it was also, you love what you do, right? So you want to be scholarly. You want to be learned. You want to know as much about your subject matter as you possibly can because you love it. Well, let's back up because I wanted to talk about this because I don't know if there's a better person to discuss this. I think that you are probably one of the first chefs that were not based in California that was uh, educated in like a liberal arts college. You went to Colby College, yeah. NESCAC, shout out to NESCAC schools. <laughs> Philosophy major. And decided on your own volition, well, because you had worked in restaurants and your dad was in it, but you wanted to make a career out of cooking. And you know, Charlie Palmer, the Clickios, like uh, Keller's a little bit older, but like that generation where they were like version 1.5, right? Yep. Just a little bit younger than the, the Keller generation. Mm-hmm. And then you had around that time, the first or the second wave of the French chefs, Jean-Georges opening up Jojo in the early 90s. Yeah, Jean-Georges, Kuntz, Lacoste, all those guys. That changed everything. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I I often long for those days, you know, <laughs> there was a, a simplicity and a purity to it, but I, I, I loved it. And, and to me- you know, I had spent all these years, like you said, liberal arts college, learning how to learn, but I had never found something that I wanted to study in all those years. And then when I, I got to a kitchen and I realized that that was, you know, my dream of being first base for anybody anywhere was clearly not going to happen as a 5'10", 185 pound guy with, you know. Dufresne doesn't look good on a jersey. I wore Carlton Fisk's number my whole life. 27, was in high school, junior high, all that. Uh, you know, restaurant league softball, Carlton Fisk, 27. Uh, but but for me, it was like finally realizing, okay, I this is great. So I'm now I, I've been taught how to learn. I'm going to apply sort of an academic mindset to it. And that's all the way up into, you know, donuts today. That's, that's the way we look at it. And I love, I love that, that approach. And I'm, I'm in, you know, the thing about a kitchen is that for someone who's interested in learning, it presents an endless opportunity to learn. Right. And, and that is really where I find the love of, of the kitchen. Or one of the many reasons I find the love of the kitchen is that there's this opportunity every day. Like we're never going to learn everything. And, and it just, those opportunities to continue to grow your brain and keep, keep learning and learning and learning is infinitely fascinating. And that's what, that's what gets me excited. Again, whether it's donuts, whether it's deep frying mayonnaise, whether it's just simply roasting a chicken, whether anything, the, you know, understanding it, getting better at it, tweaking it. And, you know, I mean, I, if I told you how many times I've made vanilla donut glaze differently to try to get it right. And, and the fact that the, the one glaze I find the hardest to make is the simplest glaze. Maybe that makes sense, but it's also like, as you like to say, my white whale, my white <laughs> vanilla glaze is my white whale. And you came in. At this time where no American ever had these opportunities to finally have a framework of a culinary foundation laid out by the previous generation and just the beginning of an exploration of cuisines around the world. And you couldn't have been at a better place than working for Jean-Georges at Jojo. And then when he opened up his flagship restaurant, Central Park West, what, 97? 96. 96. Yeah, I think it was. And that opening team, without getting the names, was Murderer's Row. Yeah. I mean, that was a great, a great, I mean, that, that crew was amazing, you know, absolutely amazing. It was great. It was an exciting time to work there. You know, 
obviously JG was super fired up and, and it was awesome. I mean, he, he only had a couple of restaurants at the time. So you were able to get a lot of his time, which was wonderful. Um, he still to this day, I think is an amazing teacher. Another guy that, you know, truly loves the craft of cooking and, and when he's doing it is super excited and passionate about it. But that was, I mean, that was a, yes, murderer's row is absolutely right. And I mean, I just remember that that was a period where everything was still new. And I moved to New York in 99. And then you had left Jean-Georges to open up uh, Prime in the Bellagio. Yes, correct. Did you work for Paladin a little bit? Well, I left, I left Prime to come open Paladin here. I was Paladin, the opening sous chef for Paladin. And Jean-Louis. Another murderous row that nobody knows about. That was a crazy group. And a lot of young cooks have no idea who Jean-Louis Paladin is. No, I mean, and again, aside from being one of the greatest chefs of all time, like a true talent, gifted cook, put the first like real cookbook out in front of everybody, you know, the tabletop chef's cookbook. They, they, you know, that book didn't exist. Nobody had made a cookbook like that before. That book still today resonates and has relevance on yet another totally different level. He was, again, a visionary. And then 99, I moved to New York and- did you open up 71 in 2000 or 99? 99. It was 99. And I remember going there. It just seemed like when I went down to 71 Clinton, I remember reading the review. Was it Ruth Reichel? No, it was Grimes. It was Grimes. It was Bill Grimes. And I'm like, I had never read anything like this. I was like, what kind of restaurant is this? Yeah. It's, it stood out singular as we're doing something different. And I'd never even heard of Clinton Street before. I had never even been to the Lower East Side. I mean, I hadn't really been down there that much myself, you know, as a kid, even growing up in New York, you weren't really supposed to go down there. It was not a, it was not a good, it was south of Alphabet City. Like Alphabet City was bad news. Like you weren't supposed to go below Alphabet City unless, you know, you had an escort. Um, but you opened up at a time where no one was, it was the first, and I always tell this to people, it's the most important restaurant in, I don't know, 30, 40 years. I mean, again, it's easier for someone like yourself being on the outside looking in than me being on the inside looking out. I, you know, it changed the whole game, WD. Uh, I mean, again, it's better you say things like that than okay. me. You, let me, so you, let me you, say it. You, you know what it, I mean? It changed the whole game because everyone was like, my career, without a doubt, would not be where it is today without Wiley paving the way for myself and so many other chefs. You have an American talent, born and bred in New York City. Spent some time in Providence and wherever else, but for the most part, a true son in New York City, opening up in uncharted territory, and it was a small restaurant, what, like 30 seats? 28. 28, and Wiley at the time had these ferocious mutton chops <laughs> and a ponytail, and it just, when you walked in, it was like being transported to another planet because I had never seen anything like this. You had like just the whole ambiance was we are not like anything else. And it was cool and it was different. And quite frankly, there was a sense of like danger because everything seemed foreign. And the food was like nothing else I'd ever had or anyone else has ever had. It was thoughtful. It was most importantly delicious. And I remember seeing all kinds of people that had never been down to Clinton Street before go there. And it really launched a revolution because I know myself and other younger cooks were like, something's possible and this guy's doing it. And when I started working at Kraft, whether you know it or not, you were constantly in conversation. Everyone's like, is he that good? What's he doing? 
oh, I just went there. I don't know how we did this. How'd that rabbit dish go? I remember people trying to be, figure out how you did that avocado with crab, peaky toe crab <laughs> thing. I just taught my kids how to do that last week, <laughs> by the way. They were fascinated. It's weird to say this now because it seems like it would be a, like a, a, just a really good restaurant in any neighborhood, but to be the first person through the wall and to do something that's never been done. I don't know if it ever got enough credit. So I'm telling you, you don't have to say it. I want to say it for you because after you open that up, every fucking person tried to open up on that street and all the surrounding streets. I mean, yes, people started to think Clinton street was paved with gold, which was a bit of a, an unfortunate scenario and kind of, kind of spoiled Clinton street in some ways. Uh, that sadly that space where 71 is still, it, you know, it's, it cycles through and it's up for rent right now. And I oftentimes fantasize about maybe, you know, returning to Clinton street and, and taking back that space. Cause there's a good story there. Um, but you know, in a way for me and, you know, it was my dad, we're very, very much a project that we did together. It was about, it was a very European idea. You know, you were seeing people doing that. You were seeing well-pedigreed chefs leaving sort of the fine dining model and going to the outer arrondissements, doing something a little uh, edgier and maybe a little edgier location because it was affordable. Um, because as we all know, it's it's a tough way to make a living. So anywhere you can save some money. And so there was a little bit of that model, but there was a little bit of, of opportunity too, because, you know, this space came up and, you know, my dad tricked me uh, into leaving uh, Paladin to go help him get this restaurant open and all the while knowing in his mind, knowing that he was going to let me be the chef. Um, and, and, you know, it was an amazing opportunity and, and, and it worked out. It was great. You know, I spent two years and two months there and it was fantastic. And we had an amazing run. You know, we it was were, only two years. I was there two years and two months. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. It felt like a lifetime. Time yeah. was moved slow then <laughs> because I remember just being like, this is new frontier. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was. It was an impossible table to get and everyone wanted to know what was going on. Well, it was tiny. It was 28 seats, you know, and we, I, the busiest night we ever had, three of us, we had 117 covers. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Like. That's four I turns. Just put into context. Oh, a small restaurant doing innovative food in a neighborhood that no one's ever been. That's like, well, big deal. You were like the first motherfucker to do this in all of America. I mean, again, that's that's better you say things yeah, like that true. than it's me. Like, it's, it's, I, when I say I, that, you know, I'm in disbelief. I was like, if you didn't do it, here's the thing. There was not – someone would have done it a few years later, but like there would have been a huge gap because you need to have your training. You need to have an understanding of a lot of different things and be a student of the whole game. And I think it probably would happen maybe four to five years after the fact. And then the biggest news was – WD's leaving, and there's all these other restaurants that were opening up, Alias, and I can't remember. There's so many restaurants popping up that were 71 Clinton clones, right? And then, holy shit, WD's partnering up. He's got investors, and he's going to take down a bigger space, and he's going to do a restaurant with WD called WD50. And I was at Cafe Balloon at the time, and some of those people wound up working with you. That night we found out we all went down. I don't know if you know this. We literally all went down, all of us, after the bar to visit that restaurant. And then we would keep on like going back and like we would finally, when you had the menu up, we would just literally talk about it outside at like two in the morning and think about 
what does what is a duck what what's a oyster flatten what we would just literally talk about foods that we had no idea what it looked like or the techniques behind it and we would literally go back to a bar and just talk till like five in the morning and then go back to work I mean, that it was, it was exciting times. It was really, that was an exciting, I mean, you know, it was either a really good decision or, or sometimes I think a really bad decision, <laughs> but it was, we had pushed the four walls of, of 71 as far as we could and, and they, they couldn't get any bigger. We couldn't do anything more. We were dreaming bigger than that. We just, our, our, our dreams, our goals had gotten bigger than, than the space. And so we needed, we needed a new thing. And so we kind of tore it all down and rebuilt it in this way that, again, was borrowing a lot from some European ideas and traditions and inspirations. And, you know, I had I had been lucky enough to go to Spain. I mean, I think I was one of the first guys to go to Spain and see what that was all about and then just keep going back all the time to see what they were up to. But also um, Europe, like at that time from like, I'd say the mid-90s, it seems, to the early aughts there was a huge discrepancy between the ratio of people that were working or staging in France. At that time, when I was at Kraft, Tom and some of the people were still sending chefs to Taliban to stash. Yeah. Which is fucking insane. It's like sending people to a coal mine. <laughs> I mean, it really is. When Maybe like, more like a museum. museum but, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Like, in yeah. terms of like, what? Like, yeah. now you can look back on that and be like, what were you thinking? It's literally like the, not the dumbest thing, but it has no relevance to anything as to where food's going. And it was a, uh, it just was archaic. And you and one of John George's great credits was, and, and I say Boulet too, like those two chefs knew where the future was going in Europe. And it was Arpege, it was Bra, it was Garnier. Yeah. yeah. And you were probably the first American, uh, maybe at, like Goldfarb was probably the earliest American to actually work there maybe, but you came back with, the knowledge that there was this restaurant called El Bouilly, doing something new. And you met the Roca brothers. This was all next frontier level stuff to the point now where if another person tells me about sous vide cooking or anything like that, the best sous vide cookbook is still by the Roca brothers. And you know who wrote the forward back in what, 2002? A, a while ago. That was- Is Wiley Dufresne. Like that should tell you how important Wiley was to Europe. And I would give Wiley a bunch of shit and call him like David Hasselhoff, way more famous in Europe. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird when you're in Europe with Wiley. Everyone's like, oh. Willie. <laughs> Willie. Willie. It's Willie. <laughs> he really is. And, and, I, and I love it because they show him the reverence and the respect that I don't know if you ever got here. And I've been your biggest fan, not just your friend. I've been a fan since you started WD and 71 Clinton. And I want to just go back to that moment because I want to make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes from how. Oh, that's my specialty. Yeah. No, not you. <laughs> but like, we are in a place now where people are playing it safe. People know more than ever before. We should be pushing the envelope in different ways. And. I really believe strongly that if New York City understood and America at large understood what the fuck you were doing, because it was so groundbreaking and important, then no one had the wherewithal or knowledge to appropriately understand what you were doing. How could they? There was no internet. You were bringing ideas that it was just like another language to people sometimes to the point where I'll never forget this. Tim Zagat said, well, 
this restaurant, if it doesn't have salads, may not survive. And he like chuckles. I was like, people were like, that was like a rallying cry for people to be like, wait, he's not going to serve salads? This isn't a restaurant. A restaurant needs to have salad and an appetizer salad and like a main course. And Wiley was basically like, no, I don't want it. I don't want salads. And I'll never forget that because I was like, wait, he's challenging the whole fucking thing. God bless him. We should be supporting it. And yet there was, the media did not, and I don't want to sound like fucking Trump. They didn't understand. <laughs> God, every time I say the fucking media. <laughs> but I mean at this time is like, it's the media to embrace and to be understanding. And there was no restaurant like that. There was no restaurant. They still like it today. And that whole menu blew up the idea of what our restaurant could be. I mean, we tried to have fun. We tried to, well, we tried to make delicious food. You know, obviously, I think that that's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about. They like to talk about what we did or how we did it. But for us, we, we, and look, it's clear that, you know, in the hundreds of dishes that we created, there were some clunkers. But, you know, again, the batting average is at least good enough to get us into the Hall of Fame somewhere, hopefully. But, but I think people were, were always like, ah, it was, you know, the emperor's new clothes. It was like, look what we could do. Not like, look at how this tastes. And, you know, again, I think that, that generation two, generation three, you know, look at guys like currently Renee or, or anybody else, everybody's doing it a little bit better, a little bit less. We were, we had landed on the moon. So we were like excited when you land on the moon, you want to tell people cause you were excited, not cause you're showing off because we were excited, not like, Hey, look what we can do, but my God, look what we figured out. Look, we're, this is cool. We're, we're stoked about this. And it was people like you were excited, but a lot of people I think were just kind of scared. We're freaked well, no, out by it. Cause that's know? why we have I, this podcast isn't great. Cause I feel like even though we talk about a variety of subjects and different people, when I, talk about sports and I know you love sports too. And it's one of the reasons why I love what analytics had done because analytics to me is the best analogy to what molecular gastronomy was. Right. And all it really is, is why, why do we do something a certain way? And is there a better way to do it? First of all, let's have all the knowledge possible. And whenever I think about you or I watch that movie Moneyball or read the book by Michael Lewis, I'm like, well, Wiley was Billy Bean. And like Billy Bean, it ruffled the feathers of the establishment and it fucking, it just makes me mad. I really get angry thinking about how the fact that everyone talks about the culinary movement in America and all these things. But at this, at this level, the reason why everything's so much better now is if you didn't open up those two restaurants, we're probably five to six years behind where we are today. And here's the reality too, your restaurant, and this is where I'm sorry I have to talk out loud because fuck no one understands that, I want to say no one, a lot of people don't see the fact that you created a new plating style. You know how impossible that is. You didn't copy Ferran. Everything that you did was your own way. You didn't copy any techniques when everyone else was copying Ferran or Heston. You were influenced, but you created your own thing. It was like the most American restaurant. That was important for us was to Fuck really, yeah. to understand what people were doing and to draw inspiration, amazing inspiration, but to be very, very clear that we weren't going to take something that someone else had done. And I, and you, that was hard. It was so hard. That I was hard. Like, Why are you doing this? That was hard. You know, uh, you know, because I remember very vividly when I was 20 and, and I, I had an idea, I was working summer job 
at a restaurant in New England, and I had, I had this idea for a chocolate cake with a liquid center. And I was like, I wrote it down. I still have the notebook. I wrote it down. And I was like, that sounds cool. I'm not sure how to do that. But chocolate cake with a liquid center, that sounds like it could be cool. You know, and then you just fast forward just a couple years later, and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about what's up at all. You know, here I am working for Jean George. And every day I'm plating chocolate cakes and learning about that history and that story and this and that. And it was just like a, a smack in the head to be like, oh, wait a minute. You don't know anything. You don't know anything. You need to become like th this machine and devour all the information and learn everything you can about what other people are doing. Because you can have good ideas. You can be inspired. But you just, you know, you got to know what's out there. You just got to know what's out there, you know? But you were being judged by people that didn't have the fucking knowledge. Well, that's always the case, right? Yeah. Aren't we always being judged by people that don't no, really, I, I see this you know, again recently. Now, again, we had that, Josh Keens on the podcast. He's doing something very different. But like, it's fucking an unbelievable restaurant. His Yeah, it his, sounds great. His uh, second one he opened up in LA. And then I read some reviews and people are like, I don't get it. Like, it sucks or it's too expensive or doesn't taste fresh. Like the fucking fish is in the goddamn tank right, right. there. It doesn't Wh taste fresh. Right. What are, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. It's that kind of ignorance that to me is actually sows the seeds of the ignorance at large that we have in America and the world. People that are afraid of getting their opinions challenged and broadening their scope. And that's why it really angers me when I see the same vestiges of people that did not understand all the things that you're doing then. And like, we still have that same shit today. And it's a different world. I can understand maybe the media not knowing all that they could, especially that era. There was no way they were going to understand that knowledge that was going on from Europe and you translating in a different way in New York. It's a different story today. Yeah, I think you just, you, one hopes that, and you know, you know, again, it goes back to the social contract, right? You sign, you, you, you know that you're going to be criticized, written about and all that. You, you do accept the rules of engagement. You make the social contract with, with various, I mean, back then there, you didn't have to worry about sort of the internet people and those trolls, but there were four or five different publications you knew were going to come and you were, you were okay with, with that. But I think no matter what you do, you just hope that the people that put pen to paper about what you do are learned on the subject. You can never expect them to be maybe as learned as you are because you eat, sleep, and breathe it, right? But you hope that they bring a certain amount of, of education to bear before they go to criticize it. Because, you know, I, I, I can remember going and looking at um, Matthew, uh, the cremaster, Matthew, Matthew Barney, right? Yeah, the right. artist. At, up, I went one day to the, to the Guggenheim when he was in the, he had this whole, the whole Guggenheim was his. And I went all by myself and I spent four hours in there walking up, walking down. And I, I just realized at the end of it that I had no idea what he was trying to tell me. <laughs> and I said, this is what some people feel like when they go to WD-50. They just don't get it. But I couldn't say if it was good or bad because I realized I wasn't in a position to judge it because I just, I, I needed to go away and read more about what this guy was thinking and where he was coming from. But I did honestly and truly have a moment where I felt like this is what some people experience when they dine in the restaurant. But you're an open individual that's curious. You could have had the opposite reaction be like, this sucks. It's stupid. No, I just, I, I but, felt like less of, of a person. Could. I felt like, okay, wait a minute. I- 
I should definitely pay more to come in here. I should, you know, I should pay the maximum as a patron. I, I just felt like I didn't understand it. And it was, it was a fault on my part that I didn't understand. But you it. Recognize it was a this. shortcoming on in, in my, and my side, because I truly, I wanted to, I wanted to weigh in, but I had no right to weigh in because I didn't get it. And, I, and I, I needed to go away and learn more about it. And then, and then you realize somebody like that has, is an incredible visionary and, it, you know, amazing stuff. But, but, you know, that's, that's what you hope, right? You hope that the people that are in a position to criticize you take the time to try to see what you're doing. I suppose the counter argument is, well, did your food taste good or not? If it doesn't taste good, then, then it doesn't matter if I understand it or not. We, to this day, whether it's a donut or it's fried mayonnaise or whatever it is, I genuinely and truly stand behind it and believe it tastes good. You know, I also agree. I, you know, I think that no strawberry, that, no, think- strawberry and fennel pollen is a great donut. You know, we get some people that are like, this isn't kid friendly. This doesn't work. This isn't, it's pink and it says strawberry and kids, sh- you, there should be fucking sprinkles on it. And I'm like, well, there's 12 other ones to try. If, if strawberry fennel pollen is, you know, to me, it makes sense. Strawberry and fennel are, are actually old friends. Fennel tastes like licorice, strawberries, Twizzlers. Hello, red Twizzlers. Those are licorice, strawberry. The whole, it made sense. Or maybe it makes too much sense. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe like, again, sometimes when you're on the inside looking out, you need to step away and go, is this delicious? And, and honestly and truly, again, I'm not going to say there weren't some clunkers, you know, but it does turn out that white chocolate and green olives make a delicious sauce. doesn't sound like they should, but they do. You know what I mean? But bacon and yogurt don't. They're gross. And that's why you never had it because we tried it and it was gross. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, ziprecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I've been a fan of Sonos for many years. It's been my staple as my sound system in all my apartments and homes as I moved throughout New York City and Los Angeles. And it's just indispensable because 
while I don't get to watch too much TV or listen to too much music at home, it just makes it very easy to transition from watching NFL on Sundays to listening to an album that Hugo might like to listen to as I make him dinner. And then most importantly, like a Sunday night movie with a great surround sound system that I can set up. That's what's great about Sonos. Again, I've said this before in the past, I'm the biggest dummy when it comes to sound systems and electronics. I just cannot ever do it correctly, but I can with Sonos. It's that easy to set up. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. And now back to the show. There were a couple of dishes I never liked and I would tell WD and I probably ate at WD more than any other restaurant when it was open sit at the bar on a day off, and no matter what, even though I was very honest with WD, he would serve me the dish I told him. (laughs) Well, there were only two people that I liked doing that to, and it was you and Steve Plotnicki that I liked to send food I knew you openly didn't like, but you, I did it from the heart. And with him, it was a little bit maybe more spiteful, but- you know, I think it was a, it was playful. It yes, was, it and I was, loved it. I it loved was it. never meant to be anything other than playful because I respected, as you noted, you've been an amazing supporter for a really long time before anybody. You know, I you know I used to live around the corner from Sambar. I was patient zero of yes. Sambar because I lived across the street, and you know I raised my daughter at the bar with Don Lee. And I'll never forget, you know, you running out one morning and just handing me a bunch of food as I was hailing a cab. We didn't even know each other. And you were just like, here, man, take this. I want you to have this. And I was like, uh, okay, thanks. And I hopped in a cab. Like, you've always supported us. So when, when, when I know that you don't like the lobster legs with the Brussels sprouts, <laughs> I'm going to send it to you because it's fun. But when Plotnicki says, I don't like it, it's because he's not stopping and thinking about it. It's he's, his just gut reaction is, this sucks. Bring back the smoked mashed potatoes. Well, that's a good dish to talk about. And <laughs> I, 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 I've thought about your career and everything so much because I want us to learn, not us, I want New York City at a large and the food world to learn from what we didn't do properly. And I think for the most part, if you didn't make a dish that was not delicious to someone, it was more adventurous and admirable that you're trying to push. And that's what I've always admired about it. But for the most part, almost everything that you made was something that I really delicious. It was just so delicious. And so many ideas influenced my life and how I cook. But I, you talk about a dish and it was smoked mashed potatoes, cod with a paprika sauce. Red, red pepper oil. Red pepper. Yeah. yeah. And... Again, the concept of smoked mashed potatoes. And it was just a super delicious, austere-looking dish, right? And I loved it. Everyone loved it. Everyone did love that dish. And this is where I actually think— So I took it off the menu. Well, exactly. (laughs) And I think about this, too, a lot, right? And I wonder, and I always wanted to ask you this. Um, I wonder, because I know you, and I would say that we are both stubborn. You— or maybe equally stubborn people like Steve Plotnicki, who you, you know, obviously got a great palate and he's been a supporter of both of our restaurants and uh, ups and downs in that relationship, but not just him, but like a lot of people will give you feedback. And I'm saying, particularly at that time, when you have people like Tim Zagat and sort of the, the orthodoxy saying, you can't do this. They're literally telling you, you cannot do food like this. I never respond well to that. Well, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. And it's like, but I like this dish. 
I know you. And I was like, you know what the worst thing you can do to Wiley <laughs> is say, hey, I don't like this, this, and this, and you can't do this. Your philosophy's wrong, but these three dishes, I love. Give me more of that. And if New York City was a little bit more open, and I really believe this, if you go back in time and tell everyone, hey, your viewpoint is actually wrong. Wiley's is a little bit more correct than yours. And he'll be the first person to tell you that some things could be better than others. But don't point your finger at him and basically threaten him because he's going to take away the thing you fucking love the most. <laughs> and I think that's sort of what happened because. Well, you're good at that, too. Yeah, I'm really good at that. But our food was always and you've always said it was more populist. And I, I completely accept that. Yeah, smart. <laughs> but when I think about how that all went down, slowly but surely, those handful of dishes that the orthodox critics and media liked, they were gone. And you kept on trying to be like, fuck you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to be the gadfly. I'm going to fuck you up. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that antagonistic. No, it wasn't. I mean, it's important to be clear that, that I, I don't think contrary to public opinion, I didn't make the bathroom door hard to find because I wanted to upset you while you were trying to take a pee. <laughs> I, we just thought that a great restaurant has layers. The more layers you can insert into the dining experience, whether it's a hot dog cart or a Michelin fine dining restaurant, right? The more layers you can jam in there, the richer the experience. The more the diner will take away stuff and go, wow, that was amazing. It was thoughtful. It was rich. I need to go back. There were things I missed. That's why the bathroom was hard to find. The door was hard to find. You know, the sign said right there, push the wood, but 99 people didn't stop and read it. And I got, I got why did they make it so fucking hard to pee here? What's the big deal? It's a symbol of, of this guy who wants everything to be a fight. And it's like, no, no. On the contrary, there was something fun about it. There was something that always made me think of like, you know, the old Batman and Robin, you know, of my childhood where the screen would go sideways and they wouldn't be able to find the door. And there was a playfulness of it. And there was always a playfulness when things. And the reason we changed things wasn't to be like, we hate you or fuck you, or this is what you get for telling us what we should do. But it's like, yeah, we like that. But like, I don't want to play Hotel California on every concert. You know, I want, I want to be known for other things. And there are other things that we're doing. And we as a group are, are really trying to move the needle a little bit. And, you know, so, so we, we we, we took those things away, but you know, we brought them back. It's a revisionist history. Exactly. It's a, it's a futile effort. You know, at the end of the day, I care, I care about the diners tremendously and the experience that people have, but then right Right next to that is the staff and the team and those well, people. You speak you know. about the team. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I hope fucking journalists that were covering this listen to this because you know what? We cannot get better until we understand what happened in the past. The greatest testament to a chef and to a restaurant, in my opinion, is the alumni that leave. And we both admire Pascal Bobo tremendously. Maybe pound for pound, the greatest chef the world's ever known with what he has available. Well, he's light. So yeah, he's a tiny, <laughs> tiny guy. <laughs> But there's a, there's a story, right? He really, truly only cares about one thing. Of all the awards he's ever received, three mission stars, all this other bullshit, it's, I'm proud of like the eight to 10 people that have gone through my doors and there's only two cooks like every four years that are working there. Basically, everyone that's ever left his restaurant have gone on to becoming extraordinary successful chefs. Yeah. And the greatest testament isn't how many stars and accolades you win. It's the alumni that have gone through your doors 
and moved the culinary conversation forward in meaningful ways. I cannot think of, and listen, there have been some tremendous restaurants, obviously Les Panas with Kuntz and, oh my God, Kuntz and uh, Deluvier, and you have Boulet for a, a good period, and Danielle and Colicchio Keller. I actually can't think of another restaurant, when you include 71 Clinton as well, that have produced as many influential alumni that have ultimately changed the game than you. And I don't know if that ever gets enough credit. And if you really think about that, the significance and importance of your alumni far outweigh and show that there's, it's like analytics. It's like when basketball go back, I'm like, whoa, Shane Battier actually was one of the greatest players of the past 50 years. But um, back then we didn't understand it. And it's like, everyone knew he was awesome. Yeah. But Allen Iverson, actually not that good. (laughs) you know what I mean it's like time it's also like when you judge movies and Oscars you judge it not by like the best picture you should judge it five ten years after the fact correct if you look at the legacy of how you played it the knowledge that you brought the techniques that you created the rigor the, the the just the whole game changed everything that is in and of itself is like hall of fame shit man you produced more alumni, and the reality is, and Renee talked about this on his Instagram post, I mean, Noma to this day, number one restaurant and all these things, and you introduced us, and we've all become good friends. Rosio, Malcolm, what's the other guy? Tattoos, literary tattoos all around his uh, arms. They, well, that, that doesn't help. They all yeah. have tattoos around their arms. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, there are all these people, and if you look about it, it's it's like – they're everywhere. I mean, we've been lucky, you know, obviously, Mario, Christina. Carbone, Christina Tosi. Again, Momofuku's not here today if I don't call Wiley for help. Fact. <laughs> and it's 100% true. There's nothing to laugh about. It's true. Like, wow. I was about to go down forever and take a permanent L. <laughs> and Wiley doesn't help. Well, but come on. Come on. No, I mean, it's true. It's and, true. And here I am dropping my resume <laughs> off looking for a job. But, uh, you know, uh, we, again, Christina Tosi, an amazing human being, a wonderful friend of both of ours. Mario Carbone, also a great guy, super talented, incredible story. Uh, Sam Mason. You know, Stupak. Alex Stupak. Uh, we, we, again, that does make me feel really, really, really good. You know, again, all you would want for your children, and, and, and you know, these are people closer to my friends and my children, is that these people would go on and do do amazing things. You know, J.J. Basil, who works for you here. And then they'll, the, I'm glad that the list does go on. And, it's like and, a list of 20 to 25. And you're talking about people that are sort of well-known. There's a whole range, like junior and like, yeah, yeah. Well, who luckily, knock on wood, is is making donuts right now as we sit here, <laughs> as we sit here, and has worked for me for fifteen years. And I and I feel like, th- like you said, the ones, the unknowns are the ones I really am proud of and feel fortunate to have. You know, Sherilyn Chavez, who's my partner at the shop, who's been with me since day one at, at WD as well. And Glenn and Goodwin doing stuff in Australia. Glenn Goodwin, exactly, a great, great front of house guy. Uh, you know, Scott Mager and some other great front of house guys. And you know. I'm fortunate, and I that makes me feel good. That makes that makes me feel like we were onto something. You know, win, lose, or draw. That we were onto something, and and that people went off and did sort of. They didn't. They didn't try to recreate what we did because they were much smarter than that. But they they wanted and found their own voice, and 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 hopefully, occasionally, they reflect back on their time or look back on their time or our approach. And and our approach was was meaningful, and it, it helped them realize that they could apply 
our methodology to their own vision and, and, and come up with something meaningful. And clearly they all have been able to. And that's, that's something that I, I feel really good about. I feel and you really should. good about it's, those it's people. It's probably the you greatest know. alumni that any restaurant's ever produced. It's truly remarkable. And when you start to add it all up, I don't think there's a greater family tree. Uh, again, we, you know, knock on wood and, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm honored and thrilled that those people all are doing things, continue to good, do good things. And I hope that there are people that none of us have even heard of yet that work for me now, or will work for me in the future. And will also do those things. And you have moved from doing restaurants and you opened up in Williamsburg, Dew's Donuts. Yes. And I was, Wiley came over, we're at Wyo right now with a giant box of donuts. And I told myself, I'm not going to have any carbs today. And I immediately had one and a half donuts. <laughs> and I had not had his new yeasted donut. And uh, that didn't last too long. And uh, I just told him, because Wiley, when Hugo was born, dropped off like several cases of donuts. And I was like, oh, I, we got to freeze them. Because right before we left, he sent me a text. and like, oh, they freeze really well. And I was like, okay. And the entire top drawer of our freezer for <laughs> six months have been full of dude's donuts. And Grace ate one, like one every like Sunday night and we like to eat it frozen. They're delicious frozen. I dare say, don't get mad at me. I think they're better frozen than fresh. Uh, I'm not mad at you because I, as a guest, it's not my place <laughs> no, to no, get no. mad. No, I, uh, I, I don't disagree that they, they are good frozen. They are very good frozen. And, and I mentioned this earlier, like to me, it reminds me of being a kid and getting a Sara Lee pound cake and putting it in the freezer and just kind of shaving thin slices of, of frozen cake. And I, I think, again, it's no secret, right? Carvel, there's lots of people that realize that cake is good frozen. And a cake donut is ostensibly that. It's the same thing as a, as a, a regular cake. And it, it really is good frozen. The glazes hold up nicely and, and all of that. And um, it's just tricky because we love the idea of frozen donuts and maybe even trying to figure out how to make that a product that, available to people. But there's this psychology that a donut is meant to be fried and consumed immediately and that somehow preserving it changes the spirit of the donut. But I do agree that the donut holds up, the cake donut holds up uh, almost improbably well to, to freezing. And for those of you that don't want to, you know, eat it right out of the freezer, it actually defrosts in 15 minutes and returns to sort of well, if you previous don't want to eat his cake donut frozen, you're wrong. <laughs> How about that take? You're <laughs> fucking wrong. Well, I mean, we did this last year at the U.S. Open. You know, yeah. we did, we made that. You're delicious. You know, you you were nice enough to let us sort of come along and we did the donut ice cream sandwich and you were eating a frozen donut there. They were, and they were delicious. So you might be right. People are wrong. They are good frozen. Yeah, it's very, very, I just, we can, it's 2019. Just tell them you're fucking wrong. Good. <laughs> I'm not, not going to wait you're like, well, that's better. It's like, you can't tell me that fresh squeezed orange juice is not as good. I mean, it's it's better than concentrate. It just it is. It's true. But frozen donuts are gr damn good. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's so ridiculous to me. Wait, I can't give you the data that proves that. I'm just telling you, it's better. And uh, when did yeasted donuts happen? Uh, it's been like a little over a month now for us with yeasted donuts. We, contrary to our to the earlier version of ourselves, we were responding to public opinion and uh, seeing that people were asked sort of saying, hey, could we, would you guys consider it? Is this something you do? Again, I I, I originally wanted it to be a cake donut shop. I wanted to, to, to really try to engineer the best possible cake donut. And we feel like 
we've gotten really close to finishing that journey. So we wanted to take a crack at the Yeastone and, and it's been about a month and a half and we're very pleased with the results. Um, and it's a whole different skill set. It's a whole nother, you know, making a cake donut is like making a pancake. It's a batter. Whereas making a yeast donut is like making a dough. It's like making a bread, a focaccia kind of thing. And it's been uh, really interesting to learn just a new skill set. Like I said, for us, it's it's not only about making delicious food, but it's the, the, the journey, the education. And so making yeast donuts has been a lot of fun. Um, you think you'll ever put the whites on not as a donut maker, but back as a restaurant owner? Uh, it's something that I think about all the time. I very much, I have always loved life in the kitchen and you know, there, there really were not many days with the whites on that I didn't love, uh, going to work. I mean, I think that, uh, I've worked, I loved working for people. I loved owning my own restaurants. I think WD 50 was probably the greatest office a human being could ever have. So, I mean, I would like to, yes, I would like to just because the farther away I get from it, the, the more I genuinely and truly miss it. And I, I mean, I, I actually hate coming to places like this and seeing beautiful, nice new restaurants. Cause I just, you know, I, th I certainly don't, I don't have like the, I'm Michael Jordan. I got to take the last minute shot buzzer beater, but I still think that maybe I, there's a little Bill Belichick in me and I can help the team win the game. And, and so I think that there's still something that I could add to the experience, to the process. And I, and, and I think that there might be some ideas still in the tank. Oh, I, no doubt you have more than a couple. <laughs> you got yeah. a lot of ideas. So, yeah, I, I yes, I would like to get back to the restaurant game at some point. Let me ask then, because remember, we were all doing a demo. Uh, I can't remember. I, it was a Stupak. We're in London. Was it for a Identita? Identita? What, 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 what we, we were all there. We were at that event in London. What was that? It, it, it wasn't Identita. Anyway, I know. I remember. Right. And the only person that's more dour and pessimistic in the world at large than me is Alex Stupak. True. And True it was fact. basically like we were preparing for the bubonic plague to hit tomorrow. <laughs> and it was fantastic. I was like, who can be more morose and sad? <laughs> and it was like, just like a, a game of horse. It was amazing. <laughs> this guy, I was like, this guy is unbelievable. I love how morbid he is. It's fantastic. Yeah. He's got a nice scorched earth mentality. And I think you were listening to us make proclamations of how the whole game in the food world was over. It's all done. It's stupid. And, uh, uh, you know, the Grim Reaper is going to come and kill everything. <laughs> I don't think you said a word. You were just like, what am I doing? I'm stuck with these motherfuckers for the next 72 hours. <laughs> but I don't think we were that wrong. And that's why I, I wonder, even with myself, as we're opening up more restaurants, it's like, is this sustainable? And are we trying to make something that's craft and artistic that is a relic of the past because what people want and the, the next generation of cooks don't want to work in restaurants or the audience doesn't want, I don't know, but what do you think? Like, yes, people are always going to want to eat, but maybe they just want a diner. Maybe they just want a buffet. Well, nobody likes a diner more than me. Yeah. That's for sure. And nobody, uh, enjoys preparing that style of food more than me. You know, I, he I hate American cheese. I still think that we haven't really brought much to the culinary landscape as a country, but I think the, the argument can be made that it's short order cooking and barbecue are our two sort of greatest contributions. They're very different, but um, we can claim them as kind of genuinely and truly ours. Um, 
and and I love the the language, the cadence of of the diner. Lord knows I like eggs and and cooking eggs and understanding eggs. So you know, I would love to to pursue something like that. Possibly, I think that they're uh, they're a dying breed in this day and age. You know, and there's a the preservationist in me also thinks that we shouldn't lose something that's truly and genuinely American and and an important part of the culinary landscape as a, as a world. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's something to be said for that. You know, I think there's there's still room out there for a couple couple ideas. But do we have the labor force that wants to do it? And that's another question. And Well, I want to be optimistic. I want to be optimistic that there's always going to be people out there that want to learn and that want to, want to continue their education uh, and maybe see it as a little bit more than just a paycheck. Um, and those, I think, are the people that hopefully will be, if I was lucky enough or unlucky enough, based on your evaluation of it, to find myself back in a restaurant. You know, we'd 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 hope that there'd be people out there that are still curious to understand things, maybe through our sets of eyes, and 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 that we could still find people, draw people, grab people that are that are curious. I mean, it's it's certainly tough, but hopefully, it's not impossible. I think you want to you want to try to stay optimistic. I know that's not one of your favorite words. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess you got to believe, right? You got to believe that you can find people. You got to hope that, that there are people out there, but I don't think you're wrong in terms of technology playing a vital role. And, and it's not just robots, it's technology in general. I mean, we have always been fascinated how, with how technology can help us do things that we couldn't previously do. But I also think it's going to help increase efficiencies. And unfortunately on a certain level, maybe replace a few people, um, I'm not ready to get into a driverless car yet, but if there's a robot that can do the dishes, I, I'd be certainly willing to explore that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just always hard for me to understand that because like my dad came to this country and he got to start because he washed dishes. And I'm like, you remove these, it's the lifeblood of a restaurant, right? And yeah. And we're not, I don't think they were replacing those people. No, I mean, but you're, we, you're, I think we will eventually. And as a whole, I, I just, I don't want to go, even I don't want to talk about how dark i'm thinking about this industry at times because i just am naturally but um that's why i want to talk to you because you're like the polar opposite of optimism and i need to know that he was like if you feel like there's a chance then yeah we should but i have no choice we, we continue to open up restaurants so i feel like fuck what am i doing well think how nice the tornadoes will be if that robot's making your tornado carrots they'll be what's perfect a torna- what's a tornado <laughs> seven sides it's <laughs> a football with seven sides that tastes like a carrot um yeah, I mean, we, we're not going to completely eliminate the human element. For sure, we're not. And and, and there's going to be people that, that want to continue to learn. I mean, maybe they're, you know, the idea of learning a craft, the idea of learning something, I think will once again find find some, ro- there will be some romance in that. There, that. That won't go away. I just, I just don't believe it. And people want to be on a team. And, you know, if you can't play on a professional sports team, the closest thing you'll ever find to that team life, that team mentality, that that place where you can belong on a team and 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 fill any one of the myriad of roles, whether it's role player, whether it's captain, whether it's trainer, what you know, that life in a kitchen is that. Mm-hmm. And and so there is that place for all those those people. You know, we used to affectionately refer to W50 as the land of misfit toys, you know, and but that was the highest compliment you could get was to be on the land of misfit toys, you know, because Because it worked out. It worked out, you know? Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. 
A good outfit starts with the basics, and Mack Weldon is the premium men's essential brand you should be shopping. Without even looking, I can tell you that Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. These aren't your regular basics. Mack Weldon has a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor, a great thing. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and t-shirts look good, they perform well too. There's a reason why GQ called their best-selling 18-hour jersey boxer briefs a perfect fitting pair. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Listen, if you know me, I wear navy, blue t-shirts and polo shirts all the time. And Mack Weldon's got a Pima Crew Neck t-shirt, a blue t-shirt that I wear all the time. So Mack Weldon is my t-shirt of choice. Thank you so much, Mack Weldon. Check them out because you can get 20% off your first order when you visit MacWeldon.com. Enter promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com with the promo code Chang for 20% off your first order. And now back to the show. I have so many questions and I was like, fuck, I'm just going to ask it then. Do you feel that Ferran knew exactly what he was doing when he quit in terms of the global landscape of dining? Because it was almost perfect. Well, I mean, knowing when to get out is is, a, is, is a, an amazing skill. I mean, come on. Like, it's it an is amazing crazy now. skill, knowing when to get out. Um, you know, there's a part of me that that wonders, I don't know the relationship between those two brothers all that well. You know, I don't. But is is there a little, there's, there's some intrigue there, I think. What and, do you think? Well, I think that it looks like they got out, but one of them got right back in real fast and continues to do all that stuff. What? I mean, is, is Enigma just not El Bulli 2.0? Did they just move it? Closer to the masses? Did they get out of making it so far away and so hard to get to? Like, we'll bring it to you instead of you having to come to us. Is Are they still doing it, but are they packaging it in a smarter way? Are they're, I mean, they're clever guys. They're so clever. They're so fucking smart. That's what I mean. They're so smart. <laughs> they but know like, what's going on better than anyone else. Yeah, but they do. I agree that they do. But like, you know, I don't know if you follow Albert or, or any of the... You know, Go look at that crystal bread. He's got a loaf of bread and it's fucking clear. It's a clear loaf of bread. And my brain is just spinning, <laughs> right? Spinning. How do you make a clear loaf of bread? What does it taste like? Does it smell of yeast? You know? So they didn't go away. They took a step back. They said, this, we can't, it's like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, you know? And so they re, they repackaged it in another way. And they are still getting to do stuff and think the way they want, which is so goddamn clever. It's so goddamn clever. <laughs> I just, that's what I mean. I was like, I, I was only able to go to LBE once. You've been there several times. Yeah. Spent time in the kitchen. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of stories, and I was always amazed at just how aware Ferran was of the world at large, which is why I think he closed it down, because he just knew that everyone was copying. I just think it got unsustainable. In that form. Yeah. In that form. We haven't heard much about the El Bulli project and all of that, and maybe maybe that 
you know, maybe that will or won't or is or isn't happening. Who knows? But they didn't stop making crazy, interesting food. They didn't stop bending their world to their will in a wonderfully fascinating, delicious way. But not way. packaged in like the greatest restaurant experience I've ever had in my life. They, like I said, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, you know? And they took a step back and realized that El Bulli in that place and, you know, and, and Huli wasn't well and maybe there was that. And and they stepped back and they said, wait a minute, we can, whatever we're going to do, we can't do this here. And they went kind of in, in separate directions for a minute. And Albert started building this amazing little Barcelona food tour. And then here we are. Enigma is going to be number one someday, right? You think that Albert's, I mean, it's again, Ferran's a conductor, but Albert is the creator of the dishes, a lot of them, right? Like Ferran's the editor, producer. Do you think that Albert is the greatest, greatest creator of all time? It's hard for me to be as abs. You're more comfortable with absolutes. Well, I, I just, it's I, fun for arguments. Right? Like, <laughs> he's certainly in the conversation. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A mean, lot of people that are in food are like, no, at least the word or the world of Ferran now, right? Even though they never got to eat Al, there. Al, Al, Albert is, I don't think Albert can turn it off. I think Albert. He's, a, he's an animal. Albert is a brilliant mind. In that kind of a sense, like it wouldn't shock me if he's writing with a chalk marker on the window right now in his apartment. You know what I mean? He and I again, I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that as a compliment. The guy is unbelievably creative and thoughtful and and clever. And I think their level of success has always been predicated on a, on a willingness to look at the world and take inspiration from anywhere. You know what I mean? They never, there's never a moment when they aren't ready for something to inspire them and drive them and say, wait a minute, that makes me think of this. Or how can we take that and do this? They're always willing to be inspired. They're always willing to learn and take that knowledge, that inspiration and figure out how they can make it their own. I mean, Albert is a, is a genius. Ferran is a different genius. As, as you said, Al, Albert sees a different matrix than, than the Ferran. they're fucking brothers is like, this is so insane to me. Yeah, I mean, don't you want to meet the parents? God you, you, damn. You, you, you know, and and again, there's a pretty amazing offspring there. But when you go to all the guys in in DC well, is, and and, and, the, and all that's that, the greatest you know, family tree of all time. Yeah, so the, that's you know that's pretty pretty amazing stuff. But Run but the I books I, that can't. I, I mean, like, fuck. I mean, all of that. No but, one's even amazed at those books anymore. What the fuck? Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent way of putting it because it's nuts. It's it's that's a body of work in and of itself that is crazy. But they've always known, well before Grant realized he should publish his own book, he should self-publish and do all these great things and smart things. And you know, certainly the first in America to say, wait a minute, I'm going to do it my way when it comes to making a cookbook, not the way you tell me it has to be. But those guys were dictating that and driving that years and years before and doing amazing things. And yeah, if you go back and read those books now, they resonate on so many different levels. You go back and you realize that, wait a minute, they made a language. Yeah. They made they a really language. They a made a language. Like, forget about all the techniques that they created. They also have a book, and they made a language. We're literally, like a key of symbols that <laughs> that <laughs> equal language. Yeah, yeah, and, it's crazy. and it's not that it's people aren't making new languages every day. The best way I describe to younger cooks about what LBE was, it's my sci-fi movie uh, test. And I love all kinds of bad movies, as you do. And we watched the new Star Wars together. That was like awesome. I'll never get that, but. When you see a sci-fi movie that takes a hundred years, a thousand years in the future, and you see that it's made with 
technology that we have today, you're like, that, that is not really a well-constructed future. When I see something that is like, I don't even understand what the fuck it is. And even a thousand years from now, it's still going to be like a thousand years from now. Yeah. It's like 2001 Space Odyssey with Kubrick, who didn't even see the space from Earth from space and constructed this world that was more futuristic than anything that we make today. And yeah. that's the best com- like comparison I can give to what Ferran and those guys were doing. Yeah, you 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 can't take anything away from them. It's impossible. And and again, I think it's like it's almost more amazing the sort of stealth resurgence round 2 v2 that that Albert and and I, you have to imagine that it's somehow Ferran is puppet mastering that They're too. Like Bob Zamuda <laughs> Andy Coffin sometimes. Like, who is doing what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> that's a funny, I like yeah. that. I like that analogy. Who's got the bag on their head? But uh, Albert is just so, so talented. And and so is Fran in different ways that complement each other ma- magically. And I think that, you know, the thing is, is that they're not done telling their story. They're just figuring out better ways to tell it. Again, less less showy. It's like I said, we all we all were barking loudly and now we're not, but we didn't go away, we have, you know? This is how we would talk over drinks. Many, many drinks. <laughs> and this is probably a conversation I'd have. Like, and you know what? I don't... Do you get to just talk about fucking chefs anymore like this? Um, I mean, it's not the typical banter of the bakery. <laughs> But anywhere, like I don't, you're literally um, the only person that I could ever fucking be like, hey, what do you think about this dish from this chef in the Pyrenees Mountains? Blah blah blah. You know, he's like, yeah, I was actually looking at that last week. I'm like, what do you think about it? Well, yeah, like I, you know, again, I I find that stuff fascinating. Like I said, I'm curious, and and I can't, I can't, I, I'm unapologetically curious. So just think- to give you an insight or as to how Wiley and I would talk, I'm going to leave you with one last question that will probably last for a few minutes at least. I, I want to rediscover the importance of France simply because I think it's very instrumental to the development of a younger cook that's just starting out. They need to know what came before us, as you always say. And I always like to think about this more now in 2019 and 2020. For years, I thought maybe, uh, you know, Ferran Agia and um, Heston Blumenthal were basically like the Picasso and the George Brock of modern cuisine. Heston literally to his credit, did something that's on another level, very different and like still hard to understand how the fuck he even did any of it. That's a whole nother conversation. hundred percent. I think you have to throw Andoni in there. Mugritz is- You have to put them in there. Those are the three for me. The whole those, are, those are the three. Yeah. And Andoni's career is so long and what, like first, one of the, like the second CDCs of Mugritz- of El Bulli? Uh, yeah, El, El, El Bulli. Yeah, like you have you have to put yeah. those three guys up there. Not not to take anything away from anybody, but those three guys are uh, no disagreement are, are, here. Are up there. This is like when Simmons does like the top five, <laughs> fifteen, and it's true, right? I, I have no disagreement. If you're going to give me the top five most important modern chefs, it is those three. Yeah, those three. We put Gagnier. We got to put Albert, Heston, and then and and Gagnier. We got to throw Gagnier up well, in there. Here's the problem now. I don't think you would ever put Passard in that top five conversation 10, 15 years ago. But now I think with the where food is, the world over, it's almost like whatever Fran did, still very significant in Spain, but less so the world over. And the, the prevailing sort of philosophy that people have really adopted, less so bra, 
And it's really everyone's trying to cook Passard. And he just was like lurking and lurking as his dark horse. And I'd say he's the most influential chef today. Would you agree? Uh, I mean, I am still bummed out that my stage there fell through. Why did it fall through? Uh, <laughs> it fell through. Let me, I'll leave it at that. Mm. There were some people that were, that didn't follow through on oh. it, but I ended up at a, at another great restaurant, but I'm, I do believe that Passard has again, an important vision, an important way of doing things. And again, all of the people that we're talking about for me, the reason that they're, that they're relevant is that they're incredibly talented cooks first and foremost. And I think that, again, you say, you know, pound for pound, this and that, Pascal, but, you know, maybe in a slightly different weight class, Passard is, is in a, like, that's what I'm saying. You can't say, everyone says Passard is, is one of the best cooks, like just yeah. talent wise. And I think that that's what we as chefs want to hear. Like you can think as crazy and far and wild as you can, but, you know. But Passard and, uh, and Ferran, Opposite ends of the same spectrum, going at the same yes, goal. Yes. Who's the most influential today? Today, in turn, I mean, you want me to say Passard? Of course, because I think I'm right. Uh, because I would never have said that's that. That's generally years ago. been your mo: is that you yeah. think you're right? <laughs> we, you know, for a long time we thought this this podcast should be called my my opinion as fact, and now we're just going to bring it back as the intro. But like. There was a period where we all agreed, oh, my God, Ferran is like, he not only won the triple crown in, in baseball, he also played basketball and won got yeah. a triple-double and won the MVP. It was just in, unbelievable what they did. And I never would have thought that, and not that it was diminished, but you look at the global significance of the farm-to-table movement, of just how people are plating food, people don't even know they're copying him. No, people don't know they're copying him at all. That's like people what's crazy don't to know, me. Unless they put an, float an egg with some maple syrup in it, they don't know that they're copying him. That's the only thing people talk about as his contribution, which is almost a shame. The significance of what he's done, it's more accessible for people to copy, but actually more impossible to copy because- because he's because he's better at it. <laughs> yeah, because he's better at it. But that's you know that 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 again like it, it goes back to like Heston and and even Renee at this point and Muguritz and uh, and El Bulli like and and maybe if if WD is 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 up in there somewhere. But like, got to do it well. Whatever it is, you got to do it well. You got to do it really, really well. And that's where sometimes these different movements fall apart is because the imitators, the copiers are doing poor facsimiles well, of is, it. This is another you know, last question. They, they, you know, I mean, Ducasse, can we do Ducasse is in there, man. He's got to get some credit. But, okay, we're going to, you got to get out of here, but Ducasse. No, I'm okay. I'm okay. My, I rearranged my schedule. Ducasse and Passard, for instance. I'll never forgive New York City for kicking Ducasse out of New York City. He gave everything New York wanted. We want luxury. We want decadence. And give us the best ingredients. And he sourced everything from scratch. I, that it, it, <laughs> ADNY was awesome. Best restaurant New York City's ever had. I loved it. I went and loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. We kicked it the was, shit out of him. It, we beat him up. But- it's also about how you arrive on the shores. You know, what I, you, you know what I mean? But we have a history of that, right? That's how New York treats its sports heroes too. You come here and if you strike out in Yankee Stadium, 
we boo you. But if you hit a home run, we boo you. They treated I, him like Bill de Blasio. Well, <laughs> I mean, well, he arrived saying, I'm going to teach the New Yorkers how to eat. I'm going to teach you guys how to dine. And even if you're right, that's not the way to engender people. And that's not the way to arrive. Lost I'm not, in translation. Lost in translation. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great restaurant. It was an amazing restaurant. And when it finally got four stars in its second incarnation, it was not as compelling. No. It was not as compelling. You know, I think that it's fun to pick a pen to sign your check <laughs> and to have a, a crazy knife to eat the squab with and a special thing for asparagus. I think that that's fun. I think that, that we should embrace sort of all aspects. I don't like it more than I like an amazing dirty water hot dog. You know, those are good but too. But by killing that restaurant, we lost a whole sort of we did a disservice to ourselves. Yes. We did a disservice to ourselves. Um, I think that, again, the only person who's really been great at saying, I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong and actually, you know, pull it off has been Robert Bohr. I mean, that's one of Robert Bohr's great, <laughs> great talents is that he's good at pointing, you know, he's, I'm going to tell you the right way to do this. And people are like, thank you. That's amazing. And, you know, Dukas came Robert and said- Robert Bohr, WD alum. Well, no, Robert and I worked together at 71. 71, was that great. was it. He worked at 71 for about six months and we had a great, a great time with that. I have a ton of respect and, and love and admiration for Robert, but uh, Dukas, I mean, Dukas took over the job and he said, I will get you three Michelin stars within, I think he said within three years or, or, or I'm out. And he, I mean, who does that? Who does that? That that's big, shiny brass balls. And people were talking shit and he did it and he did it. And he was in a plane crash and he almost died, you know, and lost an eye. Everything changed after that plane crash. But the guy said, hire me. I'll get you three stars in X amount of time or I'm out. And he did. And he did. Again, I always like That's to think amazing. about I always like to think about Ducasse as the change of Italian food, right? Because the biggest knock about Ducasse when he got the first chef to get six Michelin stars in Louis Kahn and uh, Plaza Athene right. was, oh, he's just making glorified Italian food. Like that just shows you in 20 years what people thought about Italian food 20 years ago. It's fucking insane to me that yeah. it was a, a ding that he was just making quote unquote Italian food. And now people would never say anything like that. No, I, I mean, I don't think that he was. I think that, you know, making but that's risotto. That's what people were saying. That's what people were saying. But I mean, he clearly, again, another guy who like, you know, I mean, you could argue he's the modern Escoffier from a cookbook, like chronology, yeah. you know, putting it all down on paper. Sick cookbooks. Well, and just taking a, a, a cannon and, 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 and putting it down, like amazing. I mean, crazy good cookbooks, crazy good cookbooks. I mean, I have a cookbook problem, so that's a different story, you know? Wiley but, should have a uh, library forum at, uh, at his college. <laughs> when I die, I'm leaving yeah, all my yeah, books to Kitchen Arts yeah. and Letters. I'm going to send them small, independent booksellers. We have to champion those dying breed. Um, um, you know. That was always fun when I was over there and uh, Wiley would be up there too. But um, going back to Passard and Arpege, <laughs> it always shocks me when people say, I don't get it or it sucked. Or it's not a surprise to me but when you go in and acting like a, like a loud American or they know who's an American. Yeah, they do. And I don't know they, how I feel about this. they give you a different treatment. <laughs> I mean, I, I did, I went by myself and got, the, you're just an American, leave us alone treatment, mm -hmm. which was too bad because I was a young cook, super excited. I went, 
I was not price sensitive, even though I should have been. I didn't have the money to eat there. I threw, I dumped it, you know, and then I said, hey, is there any way I can go to the kitchen and like look, say thank you? And they were like, no, no, no. I, no, I don't know why I find it to be like, okay. I, there's nothing about who I am that says like that kind of behavior is okay <laughs> at all. Like I can't for the life of me describe why I'm okay for them to treat Americans like shit. Yeah, I was devastated. I was devastated. I went I went to worship at the Temple of Bra and I was able to go back and shake his hand and say thank you and you know that kind of kind of experience. But if you eat there with a local, very different. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's very different. It's like that scene in Seinfeld where Costanza's going to the butcher shop, and he's like, no, I, I swear to God, you're going to get one of the best meals of your life. I really, really, it's it's there, and I just don't know how to explain it to someone. It's like, more than any other restaurant, you might have the most disappointing experience of your fucking life if you eat there with just another American. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been there a couple of times. It's, it's so good. And he is so good. And, you know, I think it's better to say that I didn't understand it than to say I didn't like it. Because, you know, it's, again, I think when things are super simple, it can be confusing. And that's the beauty of that. That's why I think we have a love of Japanese cuisine and, and, and many others is that the ability to successfully pare down it's and, and, and have nowhere to hide, to be naked on the plate is so much harder than to just keep piling on and finding a place to hide. What did you feel about his, what, what would be a 45 euro beat with very good balsamic? I, I did not have that. Neither did I, but, but I've always looked at that dish. I, you know, I, I, again, I think the idea, uh, uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Like I'm, I'm in, like I'm ready to come. I'm ready to spend my money and, and ready to do that and, and embrace it. Um, I wasn't always thrilled when he sort of turned his back on the, the, the meat and the fish. And I, I loved when he was cooking that stuff. Meat fish cook ever. That's what I mean. Like that, like, you know, I, I understand personal <laughs> challenges or maybe shifting your, what you enjoy cooking. Talk, talk but, about alumni too. Yeah. Moro. Yeah. Yeah. Pascal, Claude Bussy, Tatiana Levha. Like it's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous. It's like the Avengers. It that's like the Avengers. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, yeah, he's he's definitely up there. I'm not gonna argue that with you. I'm not gonna definitely not gonna argue, you know. Um But what we're talking about to and me you know, is it's like fun if, to split the hairs because that's really all we're if doing. If we knew art and we were like art historians, it would be like us talking about a painting with like three circles on it with different colors of like off white. And we'd be like, this is unbelievable. And there could be someone that wasn't our history. And be like, what the fuck are you talking about guys? That's just a bunch of fucking circles, man. Correct. And we're talking about a beat that we both have never had. Yeah. It's just a beat with balsamic. And we could talk about the ins and outs, the terroir, all of this for at least a couple hours. Easily. Easily. Not even having eaten it, let, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that conversation is what I think is missing in today's conversation with people entering this business is an imagination of something they cannot have. And I think it's vital to the creation. And I see something that's happening in the next generation that are opening up restaurants. They have more access to information than ever before, but somehow they're not, they want to push the envelope, but I think they know too much. Do you think the best thing for someone that's trying to find their own voice is yes, to copy at first, but then to stop looking at anything? No, I mean, I know that's a school of thought, like don't read any books, don't do anything. I've always believed the opposite. I want it, I want all the data. 
I want all the numbers. You but know? You, you can say that because you didn't have access to this. You know what I mean? Like you would actually have to fly to Europe to be like, I want to know this technique. And you would fly there. Yeah, I spent every penny I had on cookbooks. Yeah. You know? I spent every penny, but extra penny I had. Reading a cookbook is a very different thing because there's a. But that's how I got the information. Now you can just go get it off the internet. That's what I'm trying to say is your access to information and wanting all of it is very different than having instant access to it. And there's something about that that I think is to the detriment of current crop of cooks. Yeah, I wouldn't, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable saying don't, don't try to learn what's out there because I think you should. I think you should do it. I think, you know, I mean, I have had the best luck in the donut shop when I've just given people information or I've, I've said, all right, today we're going to go, look, you guys are not going to go and buy all the donuts. So here, here's every yeast donut from every commercial donut shop in New York city. Let's spend the next hour eating them, tasting them, talking about them. And I see a positive response. You know, I see that people get excited. I see that, that people are doing it. Sometimes it's the way it's, it's, I've just, we've just got to figure out a way to get them excited figure out a way to get them to bring them to the information rather than, than telling them to go and, and get it themselves. I think that we can get cooks excited. I think we can get people excited and, and interested in, and about what, what was going on out there. It's maybe, I mean, just figure it out. I mean, I I was always so impressed that everybody that worked for you got a BlackBerry. You know, that, again, fucking clever, fucking smart. Seeing a, another industry that was doing this kind of thing, seeing how it, you could keep people informed and you could share data efficiently, unilaterally across the entire company. And that was a, a way to get knowledge in people's hands. You gave it to them paid for it, put it in their hands. That kind of thing is smart. If we can keep figuring out ideas like that, seeing ways to get them excited, I don't think it's hopeless, you know? I mean, I I know that you want to be hopeless, but I want to be <laughs> I want to be hopeful. And I want to believe that it's just about understanding them. And you know, as we become parents, that that's another important thing is is seeing these people and translating that and and learning the lessons of, of that and applying, applying it to that and taking uh, almost a parental approach to the staff and teaching, like, like I said, being more of the coach and less of the player standing next to them. And that to me is, is, it's gotta be hopeful in a way that, that we can still contribute. I mean, cause I, I, again, you have better court sense than anybody I know. You know, you, you see the court, a lot of cooks for shit. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's the important thing is being able to see the court and knowing a lot of people don't want to admit that they can't shoot. You're okay with that. You know? And I I'm think I'm still going to fucking score, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I want to, I want, like you said, I want to win. I don't have to score anymore. As long as we win, as long as the takeaway is we got the trophy. And I think that there's a way we can still do that with the young cooks today, still get them excited. I don't have all the answers, but I have to be hopeful. Otherwise it is bleak. Anything else you want to cover my man? Ah, uh, I think, I think that's it, man. I think we, I think we got it. What we should do is just do like a, like a series podcast. Honestly, I just, I did a hash in my head where maybe it's a whole different kind of podcast where we just go in and we talk about a chef and we break down their career and the dishes and all these things. It would just be us drinking. We should do that. We should have drinks I, and just do this. I'm happy to talk. I mean, again, who's I else, love, who else I love, teach? I love those. I, I love them all. There was a time when I knew the name of every chef in Europe with three Michelin stars. Wow. I don't have that anymore, but I knew them all. What's wrong with you? You're slipping. <laughs> I'm slipping. Tiger, tiger day. <laughs> Unacceptable, Wiley. <laughs> 
All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was my conversation with the wonderful, majestic Wiley Dufresne. Go eat his donuts. And I'm telling you, one of the best treats you can give to yourself or your loved ones or friends is his donuts, the cake donuts, particularly when they're frozen. I think that they're so fucking delicious. Frozen. I know that might sound crazy, but like we talked about it, if you ever had those Sara Lee pound cakes frozen, so delicious. And this is so much better because the frosting, the flavor, I dare say better than fresh. I I love them frozen. We always have at least six of them in my freezer. So check it out. And um, I'm always curious as to what Wiley's got up his sleeve. So uh, again, love you, buddy. Wanted to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. And starting next week, I think that we might want to copy our good friend Mina Kimes. Uh, she she reads questions off her iTunes podcast rating. If you give her five stars and you put in a question, she reads it on the podcast, on a great podcast on ESPN. She's a, a great voice and just someone that's funny and hilarious and intelligent. So you should always check out her opinions on everything. Anyway. I'm going to copy her thing, and and, and maybe moving forward, uh, you can keep on sending your emails and questions to askdave at majordomomedia.com questions, but if you go to iTunes and you give us five stars and you write a question, there's a good chance I will read it on this very podcast. So do that. Thank you, guys. But we'll get to Grant Notori, who wrote in, I enjoyed your interview with Sam Kang. As someone who went to the Gardena Bowl growing up, I'm glad you're giving them the recognition they deserve. At Wyo, I couldn't help but notice the picture of Greg Popovich hanging at the bar. Is he the patron saint of Wyo, or is there a story behind the picture? Well, Grant, good eyes and very perceptive. There are two photos of the patron saint of Wyo, Greg Popovich. One behind the pillar at the main bar, and then one closer towards the kitchen in the back. And it's a photo of a bearded Greg Popovich. I love him dearly. So does Sam Kang. So there's a couple other of the managers at Wyo. And if you work at Momofuku, whether you like sports or not, you're probably inundated with sports references. Uh, Not a surprise we're on the Ringer Network with Bill Simmons. Uh, I love sports. And more importantly, I love Greg Popovich. I'd love him if he was a bad coach. I love who he is, what he stands for, what he represents, his value system, and how he sort of has a moral compass that I think is second to none, particularly in sports with all that he has. And the fact that he was able to help preside over arguably one of the greatest franchise runs of all time, which is still hasn't ended, the San Antonio Spurs, and how they've operated their restaurant, not restaurant, their, that's a Freudian slip, their basketball team is very similar to how I want a restaurant to operate. And I've always looked at Greg Popovich because I, I really marvel at how he was able to make his team so international, so open, uh, has the first female assistant head coach, just very fucking forward thinking, man. And no excuses, always got the talent, always made the best team. And that's what matters the most. And it's about building the best team, not the best team on paper. And uh, if you don't know who Greg Popovich is, you probably will be wildly disappointed on uh, 
YouTube clips because maybe they're funny because he gives incredibly short and terse uh, responses. But uh, that's not who he is. And uh, whenever I get a chance, I try to explain to my cooks, Greg Pavovich, because that's the kind of teamwork we want to have. And thankfully, Sam, while he roots for the Lakers and the Clippers and all the LA teams, I'm happy to know that he's a big fan of Greg Popovich as well. And we always have photos at our restaurants. Sometimes there are musicians of the band at Noodle Bar. We have some Neil Young stuff at uh, Toronto. Um, we have Bad Route by uh, Miguel Calderon on loan by Wes Anderson and uh, CCDC and down in DC. We have some Dave Cho stuff at Co. and uh, Nishi. We have a photo of... Um, Angus Young down in Australia, and we wanted to have something that was a a little reference to how we put photos up of people that are meaningful to us, and that was Greg Popovich. So glad you recognized it. It was more for an internal motivating stuff, not necessarily for the guests, but obviously, uh, if you can see it, you know why. He is the patron saint of YO. We love you, Pop. Thank you for sending that question in, Grant Natori. Um, huh. Martin Salada. This one is not so much a question. It seems like it's much more of a a letter and I'll read it. Martin Salada asks or not asks. He writes, I am the executive chef at sister in Oakland, California, and an almost new dad. Seriously, our due date is tomorrow. So congratulations, Martin. Hopefully it all goes well and you have a beautiful, healthy baby. So it should be any day now. I've been enjoying your podcast immensely this year, and I've been meaning to write this for a while, so I figure I better get it done before this incredible change in my life. I've been cooking for the better part of 11 years here in the Bay Area. You made your now infamous platter of figs quote during the first few months of me working the line for the first time. I remember discussing it with my sous chef, who had just come over from Chez Panisse. We talked about it as I set up the cold station for service that night. I hated your guts because of it. The quote sounded so inflammatory to me, especially after being indoctrinated in the Chez Panisse style of cooking, eating, and lifestyle. As a native upstate New Yorker, I was fully drunk on the California Kool-Aid. I spent the better part of my career talking shit about you and the people who thought the way I felt you did. I listened to the first episode of your podcast when it was released with extreme caution and skepticism. What you have shared the past year and a half has changed all of that and has been incredibly influential in my evolution as not just a chef and a restaurant operator, but also as a person and a soon-to-be father. I humbly say, after thinking, you are full of shit for so long. Thank you. You have become one of my heroes in this industry. Suffice it to say, I now understand what you meant by a platter of figs. I now have so many more tools with which to better manage my staff and to push myself to be a better chef. With all that said, there were a few moments in the past few episodes, particularly the one with Jeff Gordonier, that really bummed me out. In the episode, you both took a shit on folks who put things like burrata, pork belly, and wood-fired pizza on their menus. I used some of those ingredients, so that hit home for me. So do many chefs on both coasts that are successful and widely liked. I'm pushing myself and my staff to evolve our cooking and use our ingredients and use of ingredients forward every day. And I actually see it as a challenge to use some of those familiar things in new, thoughtful ways. We put a lot of energy in developing our techniques and philosophy and try to stay away from the low-hanging fruit concepts, all while trying to create a program that our guests enjoy. You have been incredibly supportive in raising awareness of the mental health problems that plague our industry. 
Continue to do so and don't shit on folks who are trying to make it work. Well, Martin Salata, sorry, I did that in that episode and I'm not going to explain it, man. Like I, I didn't mean to offend anyone, but if I did, my apologies. I, I have low hanging fruit on all our menus. And I think what we were trying to say didn't fucking resonate. So, and I'm sure Jeff didn't mean that as well. Jeff is literally one of the nicest, most humane people on the planet earth. So it was not his intent either to hurt your feelings. I just know that, you know, I have burrata on a couple of our menus. So call me an hypocrite, but I'm sure the intent was to have that balance, to have the thing that people want and also educate them. And it seems to me from your email, that's what you're trying to do. So thank you for setting me straight and thank you for clarifying that. And if anyone is out there as a chef and you felt that we dissed you in any way, apologies. That's not, that's not it. Like, again, I'm a hypocrite first and foremost, because I have many of these things on our menus across the board. So I understand the plight. So there's nothing easy about opening a restaurant or serving whatever you need to do to stay in business. And I get that. So apologies again. Uh, I really feel bad about that. But Martin, First and foremost, too, uh, most importantly, I should say congratulations to you. I don't know by the time you get this or listen to this, maybe you have a healthy, beautiful baby any day now. And uh, thank you for sending that in. And your life will certainly change and for the better. It, it is, uh, it's uh, all inspiring. And as men, we do almost nothing. It's all about what our partners go through. And it's unbelievable what the woman uh, the female body can do. Um, so anyway, Martin, hope it all goes well. My best wishes to you and your family and a newborn on the way. And uh, you mentioned, if you're not familiar with the platter of figs, I think it was 2009-ish, eight. I can't remember. I did a my first probably ever speaking gig with um, Tony Bourdain in uh, New York. And uh, I don't know, man. A lot of feelings right now. I got myself in a lot of trouble by saying a lot of things um, with Tony. Uh, and we did this thing calling bullshit on things. And we call bullshit on the city of San Francisco. Long story cut short. There's been too many shitty words written about it. But it's the first time in my life things were taken out of context. And number one, I love Chez Panisse. And I love the California movement. And Alice Waters is a very important person in my life. But... Um, what I was trying to say was not everything needs to be that, right? And uh, I was also young, obnoxious, and dumb. And I think that's why it was important for me to realize that when we open a restaurant in Los Angeles, we just put fruit plates on, right? So I can change and I can grow up, but I still under hopefully understand the sentiment of what I was trying to say. And I think if I had to do it all over again, maybe I wouldn't have said it so obnoxiously. I would have tried to have done it in a way that was a little bit more eloquent or articulate, but basically just saying, you know what, guys? Not everything has to be platters of figs on a plate, right? There, there can be something else. But it was pretty hilarious at the time. And uh, man, a lot of people hated my guts. Not a surprise. A lot of people still hate my guts for what I said and not just for that, for other shit that I've done. So I appreciate you changing. I can change as well, Martin. And uh, thank you for being a, a big supporter of this podcast and uh, the evolution of you as a chef and restaurant operator. I will check out Sister in Oakland when I get the chance and get some sleep, learn how to change diapers and swaddle and all of that. Best of luck to you, Martin. And hopefully I'll get to meet you in person and we can have a beer or something like that. 
God bless you, buddy. Um, Give us five stars, however you rate this, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. Thank you, as always. Stay tuned next week. Bye.